The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Luke chapter 7, if you can stand, we're going to read from the Bible, the Lord's Word. Luke chapter 7, and we're going to be reading uh, between uh, verses, chap- uh, verses 18 and 35. And if you need to r- use the Black Bible in front of you, you can do that. And it's on page 811 of the Black Bible. Luke chapter 7, verse 8. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who has come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge. And you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are trucking along in our series through the Gospel of uh, Luke, and uh, I was chatting with someone beforehand, and I said, uh, well, you know, when I usually get a week off, this doesn't bode well for shortness of, shortness of sermon, so hopefully you have the crock pot at home um, rolling, so... No, we are in a new section that Chance launched last week, 
And it's a section specifically where Luke is dialing in on the idea of the salvation that can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a two-chapter two, two section, chapter 7 and 8. And this morning, we are going to title our sermon, A Refusal to Repent. A Refusal to Repent. If you looked on Slack and I tried to uh, give you guys a heads up on how this little two-chapter section works itself out, what Luke is doing is he's basically thinking, think of the great salvation you can find in Jesus. Think of it like a diamond. A beautiful diamond has many facets to it so that when it catches its light, the light shining on it, it just refracts it, bends it, makes it sparkle. So what Luke is doing now is he's zooming in on the diamond of salvation and he's going to look at the various facets of it before us. But what he's going to do is specifically in this two-chapter section is force us, in a sense, to think of how people respond to the salvation that can be found in Jesus Christ alone. So that's why I'm titling our sermon this morning, A Refusal to Repent, Response Number One, because there is another response coming here in a couple of weeks but first, after seeing Jesus heal someone with a disease, that's what Chance was preaching on last week, and raising someone from the dead, which is what Chance preached on last week, Luke says we need to stop, we need to think about how we respond to someone who has this kind of power to save from disease and death. And that's what we have before us this morning. So the main idea, if you want to just encapsulate what Greg read for us from these verses, the main idea, the summary point comes down to this, that people's acceptance or rejection of Jesus turns on a willingness to repent. It turns on a willingness to repent. Repent, admittedly, a very churchy kind of word. Repent is a word that simply means this. It's a change of mind. I was going in this direction, doing me. I was at the center of life. Sin was what I knew. I was the one making all the decisions. I was the king on the throne of my own heart, my own mind, my own soul. Then Jesus intervenes. Jesus shows up, and I don't reject him. Actually, I stop rejecting him. I turn. I repent of my sin. I repent of me doing me and living for me with me at the center of me, myself, and I. And I'm turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing that the life eternal found in him is what I must have. Repentance is that turning from and turning to the Lord Jesus. And so now we see why I'm saying what I'm saying. People's acceptance or rejection of Jesus turns on a willingness to repent. If you do not see any need to repent, then you are going to what? Reject Jesus. You have no need for a Savior if you see no need to repent. And so that's the challenge, the response that Luke is going to lay before us this morning. I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to pray that we're going to see what the Holy Spirit has for us from the Word of God as we work through the text. So join me in prayer. Lord, we come to you. I'm so thankful for that song that we sang this morning. It was food for my soul. We confess 
We need you. Need you. We try to live apart from you. But in doing so, we are raging against the way we were designed. We were designed to need you. I need you now to assist me so that my words do not simply roll out of my mouth as just mere words of a man, but I need you to assist me so that my words land on hearts and minds, Father, with power that comes from the Spirit, power to pierce our hearts, expose the dark corners of our hearts, and convince us how much we need Jesus. Lord, I pray for those hearing me this morning. They need Jesus. They need to have their eyes opened to see their need for Jesus, and they need their minds open to understand the Scriptures. I need the same. So we're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would do these things as well. It's in the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. I think one of the easiest things for anyone to do, you, me, man, woman, black, white, rich, poor, if you are a human being here in this earth, one of the easiest things for any of us to do is to drift through the days of our lives. Kick it into neutral, adopt absolute 100% passivity, and drift. The constant temptation before any of us is to shift into neutral and just meander through our days with no real purpose and with no real drive to our lives. But I don't know about you, but I, I do not want to be that kind of man. And I hope you don't want to be that kind of person either. I do not want to be a, a drifter, just drifting from Sunday to Sunday, walking in the door, punching my two-hour Jesus ticket, and then just rolling right back out the door. Drifting past neighbors who need to know Jesus, drifting through our marriages, drifting through our parenting, drifting through our work, drifting through our relationships, drifting through our friendships, drifting through our education, or anything else that might be before you. You see, the good news is that you and I were not created by God to be drifters. As men and women who've been born again, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And now as a result of this great salvation that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ, the scriptures say we are no longer citizens of Babylon, but we are citizens of the new Jerusalem. We have a new heavenly home. We are heaven's citizens because of grace that's been applied to our accounts. We are gospel pilgrims who have redemption. We are redeemed refugees who know the forgiveness of sins. And as such, we have been remade to behold the better and more beautiful way of God's kingdom. Babylon and its charms have lost their luster. 
because we now see that the better and more beautiful way proposed by Babylon and its language and its thoughts and its desires pale in comparison to the treasures that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly citizenship of the new Jerusalem in Christ means something for us in this world. We've been remade. We're new creations. The better and more beautiful way of God's kingdom found in the Lord Jesus Christ has been open to us. We've seen it. We've tasted it. We know it to be good. We know it to be true. We've been remade by God's grace to embrace him as our number one. We've been remade by God's mercy to know Jesus not only as our Savior and not only as our Lord, but we've been remade by God's mercy to know that he is the only possible satisfier of our soul. The reason why we as citizens of the New Jerusalem so often drift back to the old Babylonian ways is because we love to know Jesus as Savior. We love to know Jesus as Lord, but we so often fail to see that Jesus is our satisfier. That he alone, think right now, imagine the most deepest, wildest longings of your heart. Like, what is the thing you want where you could say, man, like if I had the power just to make it happen, because right that's satisfaction language. You're dipping into the realm of the heart where you're saying this, I want this thing, fill in the blank, to be satisfied. The scriptures tell us that Jesus alone has the sole right to occupy that blank. He is the one who satisfies our soul. But if we fail to see that Jesus is the one who satisfies my soul, then we will begin to look somewhere for satisfaction. And so often the New Jerusalem citizens drift back to old Babylonian ways because we fail to believe that Jesus can satisfy our souls. But here's what God's word makes crystal clear as it relates to Jesus not only being our Savior and Lord, but to Jesus as being our only possible satisfier. You read the scriptures, you read the gospels, you read this specific gospel that we are in, the gospel of Luke, and what we find with crystal clarity is that the way we come to know Jesus as Savior, the way we come to know Jesus as Lord, the way anyone comes to know Jesus as the only possible satisfier of their soul ultimately comes down to how a person responds to the great salvation found in Christ alone. You see, people respond or refuse to respond to Jesus for all sorts of reasons. And in our text before us, Luke is bringing us to the place now where he's going to help us understand just a little bit more why people, in light of the grand and glorious gospel, in light of the fact that your soul can know the satisfaction that it longs for, and someone says it's found in Jesus, and they go, yeah, I don't know that I really want that. Why? Why is that the case? Why do people refuse and reject Jesus all the time? Luke is going to help us by explaining why this is the case. You see, up to this point in Jesus' ministry, so from Luke 1, verse 1, up to Luke 
7, verse 17, where chance ended last week, you see that as folks interact with Jesus, it's becoming very evident that these people and in their interactions with Jesus, these people, as they bump into Jesus, as they see what he is doing, as they hear what he is saying, as they see this evidence that he is not just some mere man, as the various witnesses of all of these things come to them, people interact with Jesus, and they are beginning to eventually sort themselves into one of two groups. They are sorting themselves into a group such as those who repent for the forgiveness of sins. And then there are those who bump into Jesus and just flat out refuse to do so. And as we will see, a person's refusal to repent isn't due to lack of evidence. It's not due to lack of something they can see, hear, or witness, but rather... A person's refusal to repent comes down to a stubborn refusal to recognize themselves as a sinner who needs a Savior. So in order to explain these things, Luke presents two pieces of evidence before us. That's what's going on here with this interaction between Jesus and the disciples of John with this interaction between Jesus turning to the crowd and talking to them about John the Baptist. These are two pieces of evidence that Jesus is putting before us, Luke is putting before us for all to see. Evidence that's not only going to confirm who Jesus is, because that evidence is going to do that, but it's going to be evidence that confirms Jesus is the long-promised Savior who has the power to bring release from all that spoils the sin-wrecked world. And so when you turn into verse 18, what we see before us is evidence number one, or you could say witness number one. What is this witness? What is this piece of evidence? And it comes down to this. It's the Savior's work of salvation. It's the Savior's work of salvation. This is a piece of evidence, says Luke, that you need to know that people are going to bump into and have to reckon with. Look, starting there in verse 18 in your copy of Scripture. Luke writes that the disciples of John, so remember this John here is John the Baptist, okay? The forerunner, the cousin of Jesus. There's disciples who follow John, and Luke says that these disciples of John reported all these things to him. So they're seeing what Jesus is saying, hearing what Jesus is saying. They come back to John and say, here's what Jesus is doing. And John then calls two of his disciples to them and sent them to the Lord, Lord Jesus, with this question in mind. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, Jesus, they said, hey, you know, we're, we're speaking on the behalf of John the Baptist here. He's, he sent us to you, and here's what John wants to know. Here's the question before you, Jesus. Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one who's to come? Or are we supposed to be looking for someone else, by the way? Now, notice that Luke begins by telling us that all these things were making their way back to John the Baptist. The fact that Jesus was saving people from disease, salvation from disease, like we saw with the centurion servant, saving people from death, like we saw last week in the widow's son. These could not be kept quiet. The reports were beginning to spread. But in an unexpected twist, we learn that these reports come to John the Baptist, and it prompts the baptizer to question Jesus 
Are you the one who's to come? Are we supposed to be looking for someone else? Now, you hear this, and surely it's landing on you like it lands on me freshly every time I read it. When I hear that question on the lips of John the Baptist, what do you think? Him? John the Baptist is questioning Jesus right now. It strikes us as odd, and we question ourselves in this moment, like what in the world is going on? Because I think there are echoes of remembering what John has accomplished as it relates to Jesus. Remembering that John has seen incredible things concerning Jesus, heard incredible things concerning Jesus. Remember, John is the one who was set apart in his mother's womb by the Holy Spirit to herald the coming of God's forever king. John is the one who publicly declared Christ as the one who was to come. He declared him as the one whose shoes he was not worthy to untie. He declared Jesus and proved Jesus to be who he is when he baptized Jesus, inaugurating Jesus' public ministry, voice from heaven speaking. John would have heard that. Spirit descending. John would have been there to witness this. And there's just this measure of dissonance in our, in our minds where we're going like, what? Why is he asking these sorts of questions? But remember that the last time that we heard from John the Baptist was all the way back in Luke chapter 3. He shows up in chapter 2, chapter 3. He's hanging around and he just disappears. Luke 3, verse 20, he's gone. This is the next time that he shows up. The question is, where has he been all this time? Chapter 3, verse 20 tells us the dude's been languishing away in a prison because he had the audacity to go before Herod the Tetrarch and hold him to the law of God. And Herod said, ain't nobody got time for this, and I'm throwing you into prison. And that's where John's been. And so there's John, languishing away in prison. And apparently, we don't know, we don't want to psychologize this, we don't get all the details behind it, but apparently something has happened to John's thinking, and John has now come to believe there was something missing from Jesus' ministry if Jesus truly was the long-promised Savior. If you go back into chapter 3, it's very clarifying. Remember, he's using this Malachi language that Jesus is going to use here in a little bit. And he's going to say, man, when Jesus shows up, when this Savior shows up, there's going to be baptisms of fire, baptism of spirit. We're going to be wiping stuff out. Like, he's going to be setting up his kingdom and things are going to be done. My hunch is that he's hearing the manifesto of Jesus. Prisoners are going to be set free. Those who are blind are going to be seeing. He's like, well, I'm a prisoner and I need to be set free. But here he is languishing. Nothing's happening. Or at least nothing's happening according to his expectations. You see, Jesus didn't seem to be all that John thought he should be, proving that it is easy for any of us to judge Jesus by our self-made expectations. Ever been there before? Well, if I were Jesus, surely Jesus would be doing this. And then we foist on Jesus a self-made expectation, assuming that if I were him, this is how I would do it. And so if this is how I would do it, surely this is how he should do it. Then Jesus doesn't do what we think he should do. And then all of a sudden, we're sitting here going, what the heck, Jesus? Like, why aren't you doing what I'm expecting you to do? 
Listen, if the baptizer himself can succumb to this way of thinking, then what you need to know is that the rest of us aren't far behind. Just think about it. How many times in your life have you found yourself in some specific scenario or found yourself in a particular season of life when Jesus was failing to live up to your self-made expectations? Thus, you find yourself struggling. Why in the world is Jesus not working in the way that I imagine that he would work? Anyone ever been there before? You're just, it's, it's, I mean, it keeps you up at night. I know he's got the power. I know he's got the compassion. I know he's gentle. I know he's lowly. So why isn't he doing what I think he should be doing right now in this moment? Why doesn't he meet my expectations of what a Messiah should be? Why does he take so long to deliver from this particular distress that's in my life? Why doesn't Jesus exercise more severity when there are matters that need to be put right? All of us struggle in a very Baptist sort of way when it comes to who we think Jesus should be and who Jesus says he actually is. But notice how Jesus cares for his friend's doubts. Jesus doesn't rebuke John. Jesus doesn't condemn John. He doesn't ghost him. He doesn't unfriend him. He doesn't talk about him behind his back. He doesn't go and write some sort of diatribe on social media. He doesn't burn him down. He doesn't scorch him. He doesn't slander him to his friends and start some campaign behind his back saying, look at that fool. He's the Baptist after all. He shouldn't be having these. He doesn't do any of these things. Jesus is a true friend. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is lowly. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus has a care for us in our doubts. Rather, what does Jesus do? He looks to his disciples of John, and he and ultimately tells his friend this, remember, remember what you've seen. Remember what you've heard, and let that evidence bear witness to your soul. In those moments when you're questioning, Jesus, why have you not done what I think you should be doing? It is similar for us. It is important for you. It is important for me to remember what we've seen in our lives, to remember what we've heard from the word of God, and to remember what we are forgetting in that moment. Because when life begins to get out of whack and we are accusing Jesus of not living up to our self-made expectations, and then we begin to throw accusations at Jesus' feet, you are the one failing right now. Now, Jesus comes along and says, I need you to remember what you've seen. I need you to remember what you've heard concerning me and let that reorient you in this moment. The same goes for you and me when we find ourselves in similar places. Look in verse 21. Luke writes, in that hour. So here's the disciples of John. They've shown up in that hour. What do they find Jesus doing? Jesus is healing many people. He's saving them from diseases. He's saving them from plagues. He's saving them from evil spirits. And Luke writes, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then he turns and looks directly at John's disciples and he answers them with language that ultimately comes from Isaiah 35 that reminds them, listen guys, you need to go back and tell John, the blind are receiving their sight. The lame are walking on their own feet. The lepers are cleansed and have nothing wrong with them. The deaf here, the dead are raised. The poor have good news to preach to, them, preach to them. In other words, survey the evidence. Survey the evidence. If you go back to Isaiah 35, the prophet Isaiah says, when you see, O peoples, 
When you see these sorts of things taking place, when you hear about these kinds of signs, you need to wake up. Why? Because these kinds of signs are the evidence that God's promised Savior is on the scene. So notice that Jesus does not give a direct answer. Yes, I'm the one. But what he does is says, just survey the evidence with your own eyes. What do you see and what do you hear? If you notice that I'm healing diseases, saving people from plagues, saving them from evil spirits, saving them from blindness, lame or walking, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead raised, poor have good news to preach to them, survey the evidence and draw the right conclusion. The one who does this is the one who is to come. This is the answer to your question. Thus, in performing these miracles, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is demonstrating that he is the one who will rescue people from this fallen world. So don't be offended by me, he says. Verse 23, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So don't be offended by me, says Jesus, when I don't measure up to your self-made expectations. Instead, observe the evidence before you and respond accordingly. That's point number one, but notice that Jesus is going to keep on going. He's going to roll out another piece of evidence before us on why we can come to him and should come to him for the great salvation we need. Evidence number two is this, that the promised prophet has arrived. So not only is Jesus doing these saving kinds of works that Isaiah said would be true of the Savior we need, Jesus is going to turn around now. Those disciples of John are going to go back away, and Jesus is going to speak to the crowd and say, you know that John the Baptist guy? You need to know something, because the very fact that he is here means this, the Savior is also here. This is another piece of evidence that you need to know. John's messengers, verse 24, had gone. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John the Baptist. He questions them, what did you guys go out into the wilderness to see? When John was doing his whole ministry thing out there, like, why did you guys go out there? What did you go out there to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man in some really soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live lives of luxury or in king's courts. Well, what on earth did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? Yeah. That's the very reason why you went out there. And I tell you, you went out and you found more than a prophet. You see, not only does the Savior's work of salvation, this Isaiah 35 works of salvation, give us enough evidence to respond to Jesus, but the fact that the promised prophet... The forerunner prophet is on the scene is further evidence to turn to Jesus as Savior. Jesus confirms that John was not a weak man. John was not a soft man. John was not a crowd pleaser, blowing this way and that in the wind like some reed tossed, tossed to and fro. This was not John. John was no pawn in the pocket of some paymaster living the soft life. Rather, what was he? John the Baptist was an authentic prophet from God. He was the promised messenger of Malachi chapter 3 who would prepare the way before God's promised Savior. In other words, Jesus is saying this, listen, pay attention. The fact that John the Baptist is on the scene, this fact means that Malachi's my messenger. It refers to John. I'm telling you this. And because he is Malachi's my messenger, 
his very existence serves as further evidence to who I am. So if the Baptist is indeed the one promised by the prophet Malachi, then he's saying draw the right conclusion. This means God's kingdom is broken into this world with the arrival of God's king, and the God's king is doing what the Old Testament prophet said the God's king will come and do. So begin to gather up this evidence. Draw the right conclusion. Stitch all these things together, and Luke's point is this. Evidence number one plus evidence number two. The Savior's work of salvation and the arrival of the promised prophet, these are evidence that anyone, anyone needs to confirm that Jesus alone is the Savior and satisfier of their soul. But you know, as well as I, many, 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 Observe the evidence and say, nah, I refuse and reject the Savior. You see, not everybody was prepared to acknowledge Jesus for who he was. I'm talking about in his day. Many of us sort of struggle like, well, if I saw Jesus, if I could be sitting in the crowd and hear him, then I would be one who would receive him, not reject him, but I dare to challenge you on that. Because right now, Luke is saying there were people who saw with their eyes. They could have come up and clasped their hand around the physical body of Jesus. They could have come up and like stuck their ear on his physical mouth and heard the words coming in, and they still go, yeah, I don't know. I think the guy's a load of baloney. I I refuse to believe him. I reject him. Even though I have seen... And I've heard the evidence. It was this way then, and it is this way today. So the question remains, and that's what the remainder of our section is going to do here. The question remains this, saints. Why do so many people refuse to accept Jesus and his salvation? Why? Have you ever wrestled with this? Why? Luke explains that ultimately it just really does come down to this, a refusal to repent. A refusal to repent. It's point number three, verse 29, verse 30. Do you notice in your Bible, it's the West way in mine, that verses 29 and 30 are in a parenthesis? Do you see this? Like look in your copy of Scripture right here. Yes, nodding heads, do you see the little parenthesis here? What's going on right now is Luke is giving us a little narrative narrator's heads up. He's saying, let me give you a little truth, a Holy Spirit-inspired truth in the midst of Jesus doing these things. Here is the reason why people are rejecting Jesus. They're flat out refusing to repent. They're flat out refusing to see themselves as a sinner. And if they're not a sinner, they don't need a Savior. If they don't need a Savior, they don't need Jesus. This is what he's saying in verses 29 and 30. He's explaining why some accept Jesus and why others reject Jesus. Look at your Bible, verse 29. When all the people heard this, heard the way Jesus was talking about John the Baptist and his response to the Baptist disciples, when all the people heard this, here's what happened. The tax collectors, they also declared God to be just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but... The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. 
So notice how this little pause in the flow of Scripture, this little parenthesis fill-in, the narrator's insight, Luke is saying this, you can understand why right now many refuse to come to Jesus and it has everything to do with the baptism of John. And you have to go, okay, so what was the baptism of John about? Hop back in your mind's eye. Go back to Luke chapter 3. Do you remember what we discovered about John's baptism? Back in Luke 3, we are told John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Do you remember this? So as John is going about preaching, so imagine this in your eye, like fire up, stoke the flames of imagination, jump back into Luke chapter 3. Here's John the Baptist called by God, the last in the long line of Old Testament prophets. He has been given the mandate by God to go and preach and call people to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So here's John. He's out in the wilderness. He's preaching. Remember, he's calling people broods of vipers and he's calling all these sorts of things, right? Remember these things. And so here he is preaching. And as he's going about preaching, the people, the tax collectors, they begin to hear and rightly respond. They come to believe this. John, in light of your preaching, in light of your call to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, I come and I've seen this. I know this to be true about myself. I am indeed a sinner, and as such, I sin. John, I'm agreeing with you that my sin is against a holy God, and as such, I need God's forgiveness. I agree with this. I'm acknowledging before you, John, and I'm acknowledging before everyone else that I am here before you to be baptized by you as a sign of my repentance and as a sign that I need God's forgiveness for my sins. That's why I'm here right now, John. But notice this, that in direct contrast to this way of thinking stand the Pharisees and the lawyers who just say, don't need it. Don't need that kind of baptism in my life. Thank you very much. Why? Because they see no need to repent. Here's the point, loved ones. The reason the Pharisees and teachers of the law reject Jesus and the reason why many today reject Jesus has little to do with the presence or absence of evidence. It's very little to do with the presence or absence of evidence. But it does have everything to do with a refusal to recognize themselves as sinners and thus repent. Many see no need to repent for the forgiveness of something they have no problem with. Do you understand this? If you come to someone, they're like, you know, I think I'm a pretty good person. I live a pretty good life. I've got a nice 401k. I got a lovely wife. I got a lovely husband. I got a couple of kids. Life's good. I live a good life. I think good thoughts, or at least the good outweighs more than the bad, or however you want to go down the way thinking. In other words, they're saying this I don't really have this sin problem that the preacher with the wavy hands keeps talking about. And because I don't have a problem with this whole sin thing, I don't see a need to repent for the forgiveness of something I have no problem with. If I have no sin, then I'm all good. And if I'm all good, why would I need a Savior? After all, a Savior saves bad people, and thank you very much, I'm not one of those bad people. I'm one of the good guys. And so I refuse to repent because I have no 
need to repent. That's the kind of thinking that's going on right now that Jesus is exposing. But don't miss what Jesus does next. As Luke re-engages back into the narrative flow, there in verse 31, don't miss what Jesus does next as he gives further insight into why the Pharisees and the lawyers refuse to repent. Notice that all this language that Jesus is about to use about children in the marketplace and playing flutes and dirges and weddings and funerals and all these sorts of things, it really does come down to this. Listen, this is the key to understanding this little, this little parable that Jesus is giving here. To those who refuse to repent because they do not see themselves as sinners, the great salvation found in Jesus is just a game to be played. It's a game. It's a game to be played. And we know that this is a game to be played. They're hearing it as a game to be played is because of what Jesus says there starting in verse 31. Look in your Bibles. Jesus says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Notice that Jesus refers to a group of people as this generation. There's games after all. But notice that the name of the game that Jesus is calling out is unbelief. And the steadfast rule of the unbelief game is this. Nothing satisfies unbelief. Nothing satisfies unbelief. No matter what approach is taken, unbelief will always find something unsuited to its tastes. They did this with John the Baptist. Notice as Jesus continues, he says, listen, John the Baptist came. John the Baptist came fasting. John the Baptist came eating no bread, drinking no wine, but you refused him and then accused him of demon possession. So it's saying, God came speaking through John. You look at John, he was a faster. And you say, that guy is a weirdo. He's a nut job. We don't want anything to do with him. Then Jesus says, well, then I showed up on the scene and I wasn't fasting, but I came feasting. I came eating. I came drinking. But then you look over here saying, we don't want to hear anything that God has to say to you because you're a gluttonous drunkard. So who do you want? They don't want the faster. Maybe they want the feaster. We don't want the feaster. Maybe you want the faster. So what they're doing is saying, I, nothing satisfies me in regard to the way God is speaking to me right now. They are refusing Jesus and accusing him of being a gluttonous drunkard. You see, listen, whether it's a... Re- so, so the way this works, the way this translates, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, the way it translates into the world around us looks like this. Whether it's a religious Jew, whether it's an imam, whether it's members of the religious establishment whether it's a liberal hedonist, a conservative secularist, a celebrity atheist, maybe it's the friend at work, maybe it's the neighbor next door, maybe it's the family member in your own house. What it boils down to is this, they do not believe because they do not repent. And it's easy to avoid repentance and it's easy to reject Jesus when we treat his great salvation like a kiddie game. I'll take the Jesus thing seriously when I can find a preacher who can crush this thing in 20 minutes or less. So you go find a church and a preacher who can preach in 20 minutes 
yeah, I don't know. I didn't want it that short. So maybe I can go find a preacher who will go for at least 40, 45 minutes. So you come to Delta and you get that wish fulfilled. Ah, that was actually way too long. I don't know if I was, I'm not going to take the Jesus thing seriously then because that was, that was too long. Actually, what I think I'm looking for is a church has a kicking band that's going to sound like something I hear on the radio. You go find that place and then you're like, yeah, that was actually too loud. And it hurt my ears. What I need to go find is the quiet place that was going to f- sing softly some hymns. And you go find that place. And you're like, actually, that felt like death warmed over. And I don't, I don't want that. So, you know what? Actually, I'm going to go to some place where there's going to be no Christians who are hypocrites. And then you go and you try to find that place. And you realize, well, they're all hypocrites here. So then what am I going to do? So then you're just back and forth. You're here, you're there. And, you're, and you're, you're, it's just a game. You can never be satisfied. Jesus is a game to you. And so for this reason, Luke has turned us to this two-chapter section, chapter 7, chapter 8, on the Savior's great salvation. What Luke is doing, listen, we're, right, we're about to slide in the home here. Listen, Luke is laboring to show to you, to me, to any who have ears to hear, Luke is laboring to show that Jesus has not come to simply make my life just a little bit better He's laboring to show us that Jesus has not come to be my special friend. Jesus has not come to provide wish fulfillment for my wildest dreams. No, Jesus has come to overthrow the horrendous effects of sin. Jesus has come to set prisoners free from the bondage of death's decay. Jesus has come to redeem sinners. Jesus has come as the king to lead sinners on the highway of salvation towards his new creation. Jesus has come to bring death and turn it to life to bring people in darkness of sin into the light of eternal life. Jesus has come to pluck men and women from the death kingdom of Babylon and transfer them into the kingdom of the beloved Son where life and light and the goodness and beauty of all that revolves around Christ who satisfies our soul. And he's saying, don't play games with this. Don't treat this as a kiddie game. Oh, the games people play now. Every night and every day now, never meaning what they say now and never saying what they mean. While they while away the hours in their ivory towers till they're covered up with flowers in the back of a black limousine. Oh, I'm talking about you and me and the games people play. Perhaps you're here this morning and you need to ask yourself this question. Is Jesus just a game to me? Is Jesus just a game? Am I playing games with Jesus? Is Jesus and his great salvation just kitty time? Or maybe you're here and you can say, man, Jesus ain't no game to me. Jesus is Lord, Savior. He's satisfier. My challenge for you then would be to ask yourself this question. Do you know someone to whom Jesus is a game? Is there someone in your life to whom Jesus is a game and they need to know, they must know the better and more beautiful way of salvation found in Jesus alone and God has ordered your days, your days to be the one who can join them on this journey and call them to behold Christ 
Savior, Lord, and Satisfier. Lord, would you bring many, 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 many to no longer refuse to repent, but instead receive you as Lord, Savior, and Satisfier. Father, we come to you. We need you. We are desperate for you. We must have your salvation. We need it. We absolutely need it. So would you do this, Lord Jesus? Would you work among us even now? Would you make us, in a sense, to wrestle with the question, am I treating Jesus like a kiddie game? Or by his grace, has Jesus led me to see him as my Savior, my Lord, my Satisfier? Lord, help us to be brave, to walk forward in obedience to what you are revealing to us now. If someone is here and you are calling them to repent and no longer refuse but receive you, Lord, would you lead them to act upon this even now? If you are pressing someone into our mind's eye right now, I know this person and they are playing a game with Jesus. Lord, would you give me clarity on how to walk with them to no longer play games, but to receive Jesus as Savior, Lord, Satisfier. Christ, it's in your name. We pray these things. Amen.